Thank you for the warm welcome. I'm glad to be back. And before we start, I would want us to pray. I want each and every one of us to pray that God, in his mercy, will whisper and speak so clearly to each and every one of us. If we need to hear it loudly, that he would speak so loud that without a shadow of doubt we will know that it is God's voice. Father, in this world of constant change and cluttering of noises that never seems to evade us, Father, I pray that your voice will come through clearly in such a distinct way that without a doubt, we will know that God is speaking. Father, grant us the receptivity of our heart. Open up our ears. Father, remove all preconceived notions, all preconceived ideas that we have about you and even about our own selves and about our faith. I pray, Lord, that you will remove it and we bring every thought into the captivity of Christ and we make it obedient to Christ who is our Lord and our Savior. May you be revealed this morning amongst your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. While I was on my way this morning, I received a call from our head usher saying, Pastor, are you here yet? And I told him, I'm still driving from India, heavily stuck up in traffic. I got to wait through all of the traffic to come and meet you, meet you here. So you got to give me a few more extra minutes to make it. Talking about traffic, you know, I've born, I, I was born and brought up there. So it's nothing new. And when I was young and vibrant, unlike now in middle age where you lose some of it, <laughs> I have driven motorbikes. I've gone and cycled. I've done all sorts of things. But now at this stage in life, it's like you're holding your life in your hands every moment you're in the car. Or you, even if you're in a three-wheeler, um, three which is called an auto rickshaw, which uh, we have gone. And as I was doing that, I observed certain cars, and I found out some cars did not even have rear-view mirrors. Nothing. Can you imagine driving without a rear-view mirror here in this country? No rear-view mirrors, nothing. Just you look straight and keep driving. That's about it. You don't look to the side. Don't turn to the left. Not to the right, look straight. Your goal, go straight. And there is a spiritual lesson right here. 
in your Christian life, don't look to the right, don't look to the left, don't see who's coming here, who's coming there. Look straight and narrow is the path that will lead you to heaven. And talking about that, well, one day I, we got into an auto rickshaw to visit a cousin of mine. And after we reached there, she asked us, how did you make it? I mean, you're a big family, six of you. I said, uh, well, did you take uh, two auto rickshaws, meaning like two vehicles? I said, no, we came in one. And she was shocked. She said, all six of you in one? I said, of course, with God, all things are possible. And she shot back and said, who kicked out the auto driver and got in? <laughs> Having done all of that, and now here, to start on a series called Kingdom Living. What is kingdom living? We all live in this world. We have all, we have all been born and we are in several places. God has determined the exact time and the places where you and I are supposed to live. So the fact that you are seated here this morning in front of me, and the fact that I am standing here in front of you and speaking, tells me without a shadow of doubt, if I believe in the God that I'm speaking about, that he has determined that I'm alive, and that you're alive, and that you're supposed to be in this place, and I'm supposed to be in this place. Nothing is of coincidence. So having said that, we all have come from different countries. You, we come here into this country, and then you come probably here on a visa. For people who are born in this country, they are given citizenship status. The moment they are born, they become automatic citizens, right? But in some countries, even if you're born, you're not given that citizenship st status. You got to earn it. So there are two different things. So in Christian life, it's not the way that this country functions where you get your citizenship because you're born. Because each and every human being who is born on this planet Earth is not a Christian. There is no born Christians. Absolutely no born Christians. There are only born again Christians, meaning there is a rebirth, there is a new birth that actually creates a Christian. And as we know in the scriptures, as we have read, we are caught in between, or there is a battle going on between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. That's why Paul says that we have been brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's Son, whom he loved. Meaning there has been a kingdom transaction. So if you're a Christian, that means you have been once or you have to be part of the kingdom of darkness because you have been born in sin. And you have been moved into the kingdom of God's son whom he loves and that is Jesus. There is a translation that takes place. And when this translation takes place, there has to be, without a shadow of doubt, a transformation of the heart to go along with that. So, you know many of you came in here on a visa. I mean, we get, your, uh, we get our permanent status. And then before you become a citizen, 
you apply. And I'm sure that many of you who have become citizens in this country have written, I think there's a call from somewhere. <laughs> Is it from the president trying to get through to me? <laughs> okay, okay, good. We are, we are settled, we are settled. Because when you talk about this kingdom stuff, I'm a little concerned whether some top people are trying to reach out. I'm talking about citizenship here. Okay, so as a citizen, when you want to become a citizen in this country, from your visa, when you change, what you do? You've got to write a test. Is that right? You have to pass a particular test. If you fail that test, then you cannot become a citizen of the United States of America. Having said that, I'm going to show you something in the scriptures as we are going to deal with this series called Kingdom Living, that there is a test for you to know whether you are a citizen of this earth, meaning of this world, this worldly, uh, I mean, atmosphere that we are living in, or whether you really become a citizen of God's kingdom. Because Paul says this so clearly in Philippians chapter 3. And remember, when Paul wrote Philippians, he wrote... Not to the people out there, he wrote to the saints in Philippi. And this is what he tells them. He's talking about several things, and especially he's talking about pressing on toward the goal to which Christ Jesus has called him heavenward, and it's found in Philippians chapter 3. And he's talking to Christians, to saints, and he's telling them, for as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Who are the people who are living as enemies of the cross of Christ? The people in the church. He's not talking about people outside. He's written this letter to the saints in Philippi, and he is telling them, you are living, many live as enemies of the cross. He's talking with so much of tears, and he's saying, their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. And who are those people? Their mind is on earthly things. Who are the people who are living as enemies of the cross of Christ? And Paul gives this description and says, their mind is on earthly things. And he says in verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. There is a transformation of heart that's going to take place on this earth when we are living and there will be a transformation even of our bodies because... Jesus Christ will transform our lowly bodies into a glorious body. And we await a savior from there. Do you get the idea of what a Christian life is about? If we are living with our mind on earthly things, 
Paul says, you are an enemy of the cross of Christ. And he says, but our citizenship is in heaven and our thoughts are awaiting a savior from there who is going to transform our lowly bodies when everything is said and done into a glorious body. There is something to look forward to. And Jesus, when he walked this earth many times, and John the Baptist said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus said to many of his people, the kingdom of God is right there in your midst. Because he, as the incarnated God, Savior, was walking this earth, he said, he has brought the kingdom. And he said, don't you realize that the kingdom of God is within you? When you're talking to his disciples, there is a great paradigm principle about God's kingdom, being part of the kingdom of God. So test today, as I said, is are you part of God's kingdom? Are you sure that you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? Are you sure that you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? And as you have already seen in the bulletin, at least two weeks onwards, you've seen that I'm going to be doing this series of kingdom living today and the next three weeks based on the text from Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Today, it's entitled as Blessed Living. You can look at the bulletin. You will know what's coming up. But maybe I can give you a trailer about next week, and uh, that should interest you to be here, or maybe even invite some more people, because we are going to be talking about murder, we're going to be talking about adultery, we're going to be talking about divorce, we're going to be talking about oaths, words, we're going to be talking about taking revenge on people, we're going to be talking about loving people. How about that? All of that next week. So you can bring your friends too if you want to. Anyway... Having come into this country, one of the easiest things, one of the things, I mean, I observed many things. One thing that I observed was, you know, we all want to be blessed. We all want to have a very blessed life. And one thing that struck me after coming here, I said, it's so easy in America. America, they say, is the most blessed country ever. It's so green. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. That's what it's so blessed. Abundance of everything. Yes, I do not disagree. But it's so easy to get the blessing of people too. All you have to do is, and people would say, bless you. That's all you have to do. Just sneeze. That's it. Bless you. You get blessings so easily in America. But it's so hard. I went to India. I was there. I sneezed so many times. Nobody said nothing to me. <laughs> Except when I was around my little own kids who were born here in America. After they sneezed, I acted like an Indian just sitting down, nothing. And my little one goes, bless you. She expected that I have to bless her. So there is a difference. What's the meaning of the word blessed? The meaning of the word blessed is, 
Happy are you. There is an inward happiness. The word in Greek is makarios, meaning there is an inward happiness. Something that happens inside your heart. In the Old Testament, when blessing was given, people bless externally with things and other stuff. But in the New Testament, there was a distinct difference that Jesus created. So here we see in Matthew, Jesus has ushered in God's kingdom and he's there. He goes up to a mountainside and he looks at a large crowd of people and his disciples. And he starts one of the most famous sermons that Jesus had ever given. And we need to take these words very, very seriously because it's a red letter words of Christ himself. Let me tell you some background information of this most famous sermon on the mount. The most famous sermon on the mount that Jesus gave. Mahatma Gandhi is a freedom fighter in India. And he was the inspiration. If you want to know who he was, he lived, of course, in the 19th century. And he was the inspiration and the role model for Martin Luther King Jr., who was the civil rights champion in this country. So Martin Luther King Jr. idolized Mahatma Gandhi. And even now, he puts his coat there in the uh, statue in Washington, D.C. And you know the pose that Martin Luther King Jr. gives is actually in his office with the backdrop of Mahatma Gandhi's photo right there. And this man, Mahatma Gandhi, was not a Christian. He had a great Christian friend by the name of Stanley Jones. And one of the things that he said is this. He said, he used the principles of Jesus. And he said, Jesus was the greatest teacher ever. And he loved the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. And he said, I actually do not like Christians, but I like your Christ. Actually, I do not like the Christians, but I like your Christ. And he indicted them by saying that Christians are not living up to the ideal that Jesus Christ was expecting of them. And that is the reason why he said that. And a contemporary of Mahatma Gandhi by the name of Dr. Ambedkar, he was a lawyer. And if you want to know his status, he was the writer of the Indian Constitution, something equivalent to Thomas Jefferson here. And this man, Dr. Ambedkar, he went to Ceylon, Sri Lanka, in search of um, a living faith. And the faith that he went in search of was Buddhism. And he wanted to know whether Buddhism can offer him some answers. Because he was a fighter for the outcasts back home in India. So he went, is this faith Buddhism, is there something in it which is going to give me some hope? Is there some dynamic things inside there that will help me to resolve these issues? He went to a conference there. But the saddest part... You know, when did he go there? After being in Europe and in America and exploring the faith of Christianity. 
How sad is that? After being in Europe and America and seeing what Christianity has to offer, meaning seeing the Christians, he went to Sri Lanka to see whether Buddhism could offer him something. You know what that tells me? There is a problem with our Christianity, the way we live it out. The way we live out our faith is a problem. People are not getting it. People are not able to see the living Christ inside of us. They're not being attracted to us. Why? Let's go to the teachings of our king. What did he say about this? What did he say will make us happy? And how will a Christian person look like? All of this is an introduction because it's very important for you to know the background and the setting of the Sermon on the Mount and in which angle I am coming into this and how serious we have to take this word. And Jesus starts off, and he's, when he saw the people and the crowd, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, and for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you when they persecute you, when they falsely say all kinds of evil against you for my sake, because of me. Rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There are actually Seven or eight sayings. People say that there are seven sayings or eight sayings in this blessed series that we just, I just quoted for you. Actually, there are only seven. The eighth saying is the result of living the first seven, which is about the persecution. This is going to come as a shock to you, as I present to you the Christian man or the woman. How is a Christian man or woman? What would be his character? How would he be reflecting Christ? And Jesus says to the people, blessed are you. You will be happy. Just see how much the world is running after to get happiness. They want happiness. They are going after so many things and everything is failing them. But we have lost. The Christians have the answer. We have the answer. You have the answer to tell them. You will be happy. This is how you got to be. So remember, this is not a code of ethics or a formula by which you say, Oh, I do these things, so I'm a Christian. No. 
It's the other way around. If you're truly born again and transported or translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light or into the kingdom of Jesus Christ, you will have the desire to be like this. And this is the test. You will have the desire. You will. If this new birth has been created in you by Jesus Christ, you will have a desire because he says, blessed are you. You will be happy. And the first, I'm today quickly going to go through verses 1 through 16. 1 through 16. And I just quoted for you verses 1 through 12, in fact. And I'll quickly give you an example. I do not have much time to drill in to each and every one of these so-called beatitudes. The word beatis, how did we get the word beatitudes? Beatis is the Latin word for blessing. So these are the words of blessing that Jesus Christ gives. The beatitude, the attitude that you and I should have in order to be happy from the inside. When you are happy from the inside, when you have the desire, you know for sure truly that Christ has been birthed inside your heart. You have been moved from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's Son. And the first beatitude is, the way that I'm going to present these uh, seven beatitudes is like this. Scripture explains scripture for me. The word of God explains itself. And it gives me examples. So when I give you a beatitude, I'm going to give you a character for you to remember. To say, oh, this is how it looks like. Oh, this person tells me that he is having this beatitude. Makes it very simple for you. Instead of trying to understand oh, what it really means. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And it's so beautiful how sequentially Jesus starts and finishes this saying. It's wonderful how he crafts a sermon. He starts with... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he finishes it by saying, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He starts with the kingdom of heaven, finishes with the kingdom of heaven. The first beatitude, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean? Is it being poor? Is it, being, is it living a life of poverty? No, it is not that. It's blessed are the poor in spirit. It's something internal. Where inside of you, in your spirit, you're so poor. Let's consider a very poor person. I saw many poor people in the streets of um, India. They are just out there, on the streets, waiting, begging, leopards. Just right there. When you walk out the store, they are right there. Just waiting, completely dependent. Having no way to go, not a square meal to eat. So it's not that poor people that Jesus Christ is talking about. It's not about having no money. If that was the case, he would have said that. But he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the person that I want you to remember is the prayer of these two people which Jesus himself used, the tax collector and the Pharisee. The Pharisee is the religious person. 
And you know the story. The religious guy who was in the church, he was a leader. He walked right in. He was at the altar saying, God, you see how I've lived. You see how much I give. You see how I do this. You see how I pray. You see how I fast. I know that you hear my prayer. I'm right here. You can see my life, God. And then you see the tax collector, who's supposed to be a rich guy, in fact, because he was collecting taxes. He had a lot of money. And the guy who had a lot of money, he stands outside. And he says, I cannot even lift my head up to heaven. And he says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. It's being poor in spirit, knowing where you have started. You are a sinner and you need a savior. You're poor in spirit. You are steeped in sin and you need to be delivered from sin. That is being poor in spirit. There has been an infection, a cancerous infection of sin that you and I have been born with. And there is a remedy. And as I go along these next Beatitudes, you will see how they are interconnected. Now that you know that you have sin, that you are poor in spirit, the next Beatitude says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Is it talking about people who mourn when people die? People are in grief or people go through difficult times, you have loss of relationships, etc. You're mourning. It's not that mourning. It is the mourning for your sins, for your very own sins. And not only your very own sins, but also for the sins and the plight of humanity itself. And the person that I want to bring to your mind, for, for the first beatitude, it was a tax collector. The second one, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, is Nehemiah. Nehemiah, you know, he was in Persia. He was in the kingdom of Persia. He was serving. He, he was at, at the prime of his career. He was the cupbearer to the king. He was doing so well. But still, when he heard about his people back in Jerusalem and heard about their plight and how the temple has been torn down, has been destroyed, he was in agony. He was mourning. He, he went into fasting and praying. And if you see in the prayer of Nehemiah, right there in Nehemiah, he says, he's praying not only for his own sins, he's praying for the sins of his people. He's mourning for the sins of himself and his people. And he was comforted. How was he comforted? He was chosen to be the leader to go and rebuild the temple. God comforted him by using him to rebuild the destroyed temple. What did Jesus say when the women were crying, when he was being taken to the cross? Women were crying, they're weeping. What did Jesus tell them? Do not weep for me. Do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves. Weep for your children. It is mourning for our sins. First we start with where we are, our sinful nature. We mourn for our sins and for the sins of the people. Third, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Meek. Who are the meek people? The world does not appreciate meek people. 
Another word for meekness that you can use, or it is used very often in scripture, is humility. It's being very humble. And it is a per- there is a person who said, you know, I want to tell you that I am the most humblest of all the people on this earth. <laughs> Blessed are the meek. And Moses is the person that I want to give you. Moses is the example. Because the scripture itself testifies that he was the meekest person of, on the face of the earth. Now, think about Moses. Was he the meekest person? The first thing that comes to my mind, when he knew, when he saw some injustice taking place, he took matters in his own hands and he committed murder. He did it for a good cause. But was that right? God took him away 40 years out there into the wilderness to change his heart. To bring meekness where he will be yielded to that one master. And then he sent, chose him and said, I will send you to Pharaoh. And this guy Pharaoh is not going to let the people go. And still you have to go. And you have to get my people out. And he was the meekest person. Moses is a wonderful example. He had power. God did miracles through his hands. And even then when the people came and cursed at him, people came and said, why did we believe you and came all the way here? See, we're all going to be dying here because of you. He didn't curse the people. He didn't scold them. Why do you come and shout at me? He went straight to God and said, God, what's going on here? the meekest person, and God gave him the privilege of inheriting the earth. Many people say, oh yeah, he lost the opportunity to enter into Canaan. But you know what? Many people wish to see Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in incarnation. Many of the prophets wanted and they lived for that. But Moses was the only one given the privilege on the Mount of Transfiguration along with Elijah, to see Jesus in the flesh. He inherited the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. How do we hunger and thirst for righteousness? Remember, you don't become righteous because you hunger and thirst for righteousness. The doctrine of sanctification and righteousness is this. When you are brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's son whom he loves, you are given a positional status of being righteous just like Jesus. Because when God looks at you, he looks at Jesus first and through him he looks at you. He looks at the righteous life of Christ, the sinless life that was offered to him on the cross of Calvary as the redemption for our sins. And he looks at you as a righteous person. Now, this is working not to get salvation, but because you have been saved, you're working to live up to the status. Say, for example, suddenly they, be, they make me the president of, uh, should I say USA? I'm not even a citizen of this country. <laughs> so, India. maybe India, yeah. They say the Indian presidents are rubber stamps, so maybe I could be that. But in fact, this, uh, the new prime minister 
is creating stirs, you know. It seems he's, the, I think he's the second most followed um, world leader on Twitter after President Obama. <laughs> so we come second. And they call the modified country. And even my son said, when you're just walking around the stores, he said, I want to get that Modi style uh, coat, you know. So carried away by this new prime minister and his style. But anyway, if I am given that status, I got to work or look like one. I got to dress like one. I got to be like one. I got to conduct myself like one. So it's similar to if you've been given the status of righteousness, you got to live like a righteous person. Hunger and thirst after righteousness. Another thing that I want to uh, insert here by saying, we say hunger and thirst. I mean, how many of us have felt hunger pangs in this country? I don't think anyone feels hungry here. We just eat because we have to eat, right? We are never hungry. We want to eat. eat. The food is always out there. You have to keep on eating and we feel and we face the consequences of eating. We do and then we have hospitals, then we have doctors, then we got to consider insurance. And they all live because of our eating. <laughs> Having said this, that they all live and they continue to do, I mean, we give them life, we, we promote economy. Hunger is so hard to understand in this country unless you go to third world countries and you see young children and you see people out there on the streets. You, and when, I, I've told you this before, I've seen, when I, when I was growing up, I've seen people digging through garbages outside the church compound where I lived for food to eat. So I know what hunger is. So the example that I can give you for this hunger and thirst is that, you know, pregnant women, I think we all know how pregnant women, when they get pregnant, they have an unusual craving for a period of time. They crave for certain kinds of foods at unusual times, unusual foods. There is a craving inside of them. They want to wake up at like 2 o'clock in the morning and ask for something. Or 11 o'clock in the morning. I had four, right? So you know how it works. <laughs> so, of course, my wife didn't give me too much of trouble in that. She'll make her own food and eat. <laughs> so, uh, there is a craving. There's a craving. And for us, I would like to use the word craving. You know why? Because we have so much of food out there. But sometimes, you know, you have a craving for Chinese food. Then you have a craving for maybe Thai food. or You have a kind of a craving inside of you. Today your, your tongue is just watering just for that kind of food. You're already imagining, Pastor Salman, you finish up. I need to go get my Mexican food out there. <laughs> but you can wait for a little while. This is so important that you need to get this. You need to have a craving for righteousness, for right living. For right living, how do you have? I want to tell you, it's so hard to have that. We compromise. As I told you before, these are the attributes that will attract people outside. When they look at you, when they look at your life, they will see that there is something different. Your hunger, your craving is not like their craving. Your craving for righteousness, to do things right in life. No matter what the consequences are. Craving for hunger 
and uh, and the example that I want to give you is um, the person that I want to bring before you for this is um, David, King David. You may think, how is King David an example of a person who hungered and thirsted for righteousness? Of course, in Psalm 61, he said, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for you. I thirst for you, my living God. He wrote so many Psalms. But you know why I'll tell you he really thirsted for hunger and thirst after righteousness and how his life quality is connected with this beatitude? This man, when he was anointed to be the king of Israel, he had a waiting time of 17 years. And you know how he had to fight against King Saul. This man killed a lion and a bear with bare hands. We know that he killed Goliath with one shot. How long it would have taken for him to get Saul? Do you think it was not within his power? He was a warrior, mighty warrior. How long would it have taken for David to bring Saul down? You know the reason why he did not do it is because he said, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. He was living by a principle of another kingdom. He had a kingdom of his own. He knew he was going to be, be king. But still he refused. He had power under control. Meaning meek. We said blessed are the meek. Meek means having power under control. So that's the example for blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Next, blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. How do we understand Blessed are the merciful. Who are the people who show mercy? The example again for you is very simple. The Good Samaritan story. Remember that. There are three people, the Levite, the priest, and then this outsider, Samaritan. And Jesus used an example to tell how to love your neighbor. And this example I want to give you for being merciful. We all see needs all around us. Tremendous needs, but sometimes you just walk past it. But there was this Samaritan. What did he do? He went, he cleansed the wounds of that hurt guy who was fallen down because of robbery, and then he took him to an inn, put him there, gave money to be taken care of, and told the innkeeper, if you need more, I'll come back and take care of it. That is being merciful. Not saying, oh, I have mercy. I can show mercy. Grace is receiving favor, unmerited favor, something that you do not deserve from God. Mercy is getting, uh, not getting what you deserve. Meaning, sometimes this robber out there, he, doesn't deserve he does not deserve mercy from anybody. He did not deserve it. He, he was just lying there. But then, the Samaritan, he went and he took care of him. He showed him mercy. It is being tangible in the way you live your life. It's being very, very practical. That's the mercy and the compassion of God. That's the example. The next one, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Purity of heart, how important is it? How important is that? How can you be so pure in your heart? Do you have the desire? Jesus says, 
Happy are you if you're pure in heart, for you will see God. And the person that I want to um, give you as an example is Job. Job was a man who was pure in heart. His friends came and told him, his wife told him, curse God and die. You do not deserve this. And Job says, I have made a covenant with my eyes that I will not sin. I will not lustfully look at a woman. And in Job 19.26 he says, after going through so much of pain and agony, he said, Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Let's not get into the nitty-gritty details of, oh, can you really see God? It is about experiencing God in his presence. God, we know, does not dwell in unholy atmosphere. The closer you get to God, the more magnified will the little sins be. The closer you get to God, the more magnified the little sins will become. I'm not talking about the big sins. If you're really close to God, the little sins will affect you. Your little thoughts would affect you. Because the Spirit of God is creating that purity. The seventh one. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Peacemakers. We need lots of peacemakers on this earth. Who are the peacemakers? Are they those people who want to live peaceful lives no matter what? Or they want to have a kind of a very smooth atmosphere, smooth uh, situation. They just overlook all the faults. They overlook everything that happens around them. They have a very calm, composure, composed um, temperament. No. Remember that these beatitudes are not natural dispositions. And here I want to acknowledge a book that I have been given by a friend here in this church. And I'm very grateful to him for that. And this book is from, um, by the author Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was the minister of Westminster Chapel. He's written a studies on the Sermon on the Mount, which I've been reading as I've been preparing also for the sermon, so thick, it's around 500 pages. Just on the Sermon on the Mount. And if I have to uh, preach through and study that, I would need probably the next two to three years. So much of depth. And he is so confident to say that this kind of a life will attract and is the most powerful evangelistic tool out there. People will be attracted to this kind of a life. And as we see, blessed are the peacemakers. Peacemakers are people who want to create peace, not at the cost of uh, comfort. No. There will be offense. But it will be at the cost of their lives. And the example I want to give you is Jonathan who was the son of Saul and who was the best friend of David. Just, remember, just imagine this setting, this triangle, this relationship. King Saul, his son Jonathan, and David, who's anointed to be the king. 
Jonathan rightfully should become the king because he's the son of King Saul. But then he knows David has been appointed. And he becomes best pals with David, Saul and Jonathan. I mean, uh, Jonathan and David, best pals. They love each other. And why do I say that Jonathan was a peacemaker? When the father is insecure and trying to get David, he says, Dad, why do you do this? He's done you no harm. And in fact, when his father was trying to get David, he stood in between David and his father. And he was ready to lay his life down because he wanted to make peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And quickly, now having said these seven Beatitudes, the result, if you live like this, meaning poor in spirit, mourning for your sins, meek, hungering and thirsting for, right, for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, being a peacemaker, you know what's going to happen? And this is going to shock you. It's going to shock you. Happy are you, Jesus says. You, you will be persecuted. Blessed are you when you are persecuted, not because of your own faults, not because of your wrong decisions. Those are consequences of sin. But here he says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This will be the result if you live the first seven. And the example I want to give you, the person from the scripture is Paul. Saul who turned to Paul. He was a murderer. He was the most intellect guy. He went to get the Christians and God turned him around. And when his life was transformed, you will see how he writes the Beatitudes in Romans chapter 12. You can read it for yourself. He himself has his own exposition of how the Beatitudes are supposed to be lived. And the example of Paul, why do I choose Paul? You must read his resume, so to speak, or the things that he went through. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. This man was the smartest man at the time. And he says this. It is through much hardship that we should enter into the kingdom of God. And he says to Timothy when he's writing, in fact, all who want to live godly lives will be persecuted. I want you to note this verse down. When he's writing to Timothy, he says, in fact, all who want to live godly lives will be persecuted. Does that apply to you and me? Absolutely. If you're not persecuted, that means to me in very simple terms that I am not really aspiring to live a godly life because I will be accepted among my peers. I'll be accepted amongst my people. Jesus himself is the greatest example in this. He said, if they hated me, be sure that you will be hated. 
How did we get this idea that Christians are supposed to be most popular and most accepted by everybody on this earth? If our Savior Jesus Christ himself was not accepted and was taken to the cross, and he says, that's what's happened to you. If you're a Christian, that I told you today at the outset, this is the litmus test. This is the litmus test. This is going to tell you whether you are a Christian or not. Whether you really aspire. Nobody wants persecution. Let me put that straight forward. Nobody likes to be persecuted. But for righteousness sake, Jesus says, if you're persecuted, something inside of you will happen. You will be happy. And it's a hard process. And Jesus went through that process and that's why he says that. And how important is this? He continues to expound on this. After he says, for this is the kingdom of heaven, he then tells, blessed are you, happy are you. You need to be happy, people. When? Not when, you, when everybody comes and uh, I mean, admire you. They speak plaudits about you. They say, oh, you're the wonderful person. You're so great. You're wonderful. I like you, blah, blah, all of that. No. He said, do not be happy when people praise you. Paul says, I do not, I do not live for the praise of people. I'm waiting for the, what's going to come out from the lips of God when I see him. Because people will speak one thing right in front of you now and one thing at the back. And if there is one thing that you can be happy about is this. When people insult you, when people persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you behind your back because of me, what does Jesus say? Rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven. God, this is not possible. How can it be possible? So if I'm going to start insulting you, persecuting you, I'm going to say falsely all kinds of evil against you, you're going to come and say, praise the Lord, Pastor. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Hallelujah. How many of you are going to say that? Rejoice and be glad. How can you rejoice and be glad? For great is your reward. That's why I said, Paul wrote it so beautifully in Colossians. Set your mind on things above and not on things of the earth. And that's why he said, people who live as enemies of the cross of Christ are those people who set their mind on earthly things. He said it very, very clearly. Your mind is not set on heavenly things. And that's why you are an enemy of the cross of Christ. How can, you how can you be rejoicing and be glad? It's because you look beyond this earthly realm to the heavenly realm. There is something out there for you. This life is going to pass away. This life is going to pass away. You know, in, in our family, this last, over the last two months, six months, we've lost two. And the youngest one that we lost was 19 years old. And in that place called New Delhi, 
it's the same for everybody because they do not have much space. All that they have is probably a six foot by 10 dug up hole right there. That's all you get. You just can, you cannot even build a grave. There's just a mound of sand over it. And it's the same for everybody. And what they do is they have six more holes dug up and ready. They just keep it ready. Here your one person is there. Then there's another hole right there, another six. So on May 15th, when we buried our knees right there, and when I went back to the grave to visit in, when during my visit now, the remaining six or seven has been filled in that row. And in fact, everybody looked the same, just the same amount of sand. Nobody can have a grave. There was a very popular man who was buried because we saw a big uh, poster of that guy out there. But all that he had also was just sand. That's it. This life is going to pass away. Great is your reward in heaven. And you know what? Why you can rejoice again? Is because for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are equated to a prophet, kind of Jeremiah, who was persecuted, Isaiah, if you consider Moses to be a prophet. Those people who went through persecution, it says, you are equated to that status, but you need to go through this to become a prophet like them when people persecute you. Having said that, just two things and we are done. I gave you the sevenfold saying and then the result of how it will look like when this character of Christ is being exemplified. And Jesus used two metaphors. And the first one, after saying this, he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt. We all know about salt. Salt is not the life-giving uh, ingredient in any food, you know. It is needed. It creates flavor. It creates taste. Yes, it is. But the most important property of salt is a preservative. It preserves food. It preserves food. It's kind of a controlling substance. So if you are the salt of the earth, it's an example of when when you enter into a particular situation, people knowing who you are change. They act differently because they know you have a different standard. And you have unconsciously, just by your life, you have infected them. It's like when you're growing up. I mean, when, when, when you walk into a place, if the guys there who use, uh, I mean, words that are not supposed to be spoken, and the moment you enter, they stop using those words, that means you have earned respect for God. Yeah. It's not that you are being isolated. You are the salt of the earth. You infect. Not only you create savor or taste, but you also preserve the society that is degrading. Quickly, you are the light of the world. And just imagine the only place where Jesus equates you and me and gives us the same function is this. He said seven great I am statements. And one of which was, I am the light of the world. 
and he directly tells you and me, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Salt of the earth and light of the world. Salt of the earth is general in the society. And being a light is specific to your situation, your setting. When you walk in, when your presence is there, you dispel the darkness because the light of the world is inside of you. You shine, you radiate that light out to the people. This is the true blessing of God. I want you to think with how the world is and with the things that we go after. Is this the happiness that you and I want? Jesus says, happy are you if these things happen. If you're poor in spirit, if you mourn for your sins, if you're meek, you will inherit the earth. If you hunger and thirst after righteousness, you will be filled. If you show mercy, you will be shown mercy. If you're pure in heart, you will see God. If you're a peacemaker, you will be called the children of God. If you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, revile you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. You are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. This is the litmus test of being a Christian. If you want citizenship in the kingdom of God, if you are a citizen in the kingdom of God, this is how your life will be. And the question and the challenge this morning to you is, do you really want to be in God's kingdom? to be a citizen? Do you have the desire to be living with these Beatitudes? Do you have that aspiration inside of you? Remember, these are not natural dispositions of the heart. It is not natural for a human being, for a Christian to live like this unless he is empowered by the Holy Spirit himself. Unless the Holy Spirit of God is inside of you, you will be able to face persecution. Jesus faced it. He was poor in spirit. He had all of these beatitudes. I give you the last example of Paul. He had all of these things. Why? Because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. You need God the Spirit of God to empower you. You cannot do this on your own. Do not think because it sounded so attractive. Oh, this is what maybe the Spirit of God has birthed or sparked something inside of you and you say, oh, I want to do this. I want to be like this. Please, 
you need the spirit of god to empower you you need the holy spirit to grant you the ability to be poor in spirit to be meek to be a peacemaker to endure persecution for righteousness sake if you do that yours is the kingdom of heaven this is the litmus test i want us to pray i want you to just meditate or just bring your thoughts before god when i say meditate is to bring your thoughts before god